welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this January 2014 episode of the podcast, we're going to focus on the 175th anniversary of photography. I've got some great tips, tools, products, and websites for you, all devoted in one way or another to photography and those treasured old family photos that you might have tucked away. We're going to start this time over at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, and right off the bat, she will point us to some great resources at Family Tree Magazine. And then we will head over to the Genealogy Insider blog, where managing editor Diane Haddad will tell us how some of the biggest websites in genealogy are incorporating photographs. And then we'll jump into the top tips segment to talk about the history of photography and its impact on our family history with the photo detective, Maureen Taylor. Then in our 101 Best Websites segment, we will dig into the What Was There website that helps you incorporate past photos with the present. And finally, in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Family Tree University instructor Nancy Hendrickson is back to give us some techniques for photo restoration from her upcoming webinar. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Publisher's Desk with Allison Dolan. Well, we normally end each episode with our uh, conversation with the publisher of Family Tree Magazine, Allison Dolan, but I've invited her to join me up front to lay out the theme for this episode. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. You know, one of the things that has always been a mainstay of Family Tree Magazine is photographs, and I'm a very visual person, so I love that because it's all about visualizing our ancestors and, and the past. And it really has been on the forefront of your mind from the very beginning, hasn't it? It sure has. Uh, we're really excited this year to be celebrating the 175th anniversary of photography in 1839. Daguerreotypes came sort of into the mainstream society. And so that's so much rich visual history that our readers of Family Tree Magazine can explore as they explore their family histories. And we have several features um, within the magazine and on our website that really celebrate and help genealogists make the most of the photography. Yeah, you know, and the celebration, it gets, it gets a little murky because there was a lot of things going on back in the 1800s. 1835, you know, William Henry Fox Talbot, he owned the Laycock Abbey, and he takes the little picture out the window, which a lot of people have seen as being kind of dubbed the first photograph, if you will. But really, 1839, 175 years ago, uh, that's when Sir John Herschel gets up and, and gives a lecture in front of the Royal Society of London and, and kind of coins that word photography. That's where the word photography really comes into being. And so much has happened till then. I know we're going to have Maureen here in the episode giving us all the background on daguerreotypes. But where can readers find her on a regular basis to, to keep up with everything photography? Sure. Maureen Taylor is the photo detective, and she has been writing a blog and a column in Family Tree Magazine for quite some time now, a number of years. And the upshot of the column and the blog are really about helping you identify and date your photos that you discover in your genealogy research. I mean, how many of us have a photo that we've inherited from, you know, some other relative or that we found in the course of our research where 
we're not sure who the faces are or when it was taken or maybe some cases you don't even know what re- what branch of your family it represents. Well, um, what's am- so amazing about photography is that there are hidden clues in every photograph that will tell you something about your family history, even, you know, beyond the basics. It can really give you some insight into the times your ancestors live in. And that's what the photo detective blog and column are all about. Yeah, I love it. She can, you know, she looks at a picture and she gets you thinking about all the little elements around the person that we tend to tune out, but how they're the clue, like, What's the year of the car they're sitting in? Or, you know, what's the street sign in the background? Or, or what uh, way in which they're wearing their hair? All of those things, of course, are clues. And Maureen's written a great book, and I know that's in Shop Family Tree. Tell us about that. Right. It's called Family Photo Detective, fittingly. Um, and it really is sort of the complete guide to identifying and dating your historical photographs. Maureen, through the course of writing the blog and column, we receive submissions from all of our readers with photographs that they can't identify. And so Maureen analyzes those and she features some of them uh, in the writing to point out where those clues are and what they can tell you about the photograph. And so this book really encapsulates all of the different elements that you can use in analyzing a photograph and helping you to put names and dates to the faces in those mystery photos. Yeah, I, I love that you guys, you know, even have fun in the magazine with photos. You invite readers, don't you, to, to submit their, or, or you have a photo. I know what it is. You guys will show a photo and say, tell us what you think the caption is. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Those are so cute. Yeah, we do like to have fun with it. And, you know, I think if you go back into the early history of photography, because the nature of how the photograph was taken has changed, you know, a lot of times the, the people in them look very stiff and rigid, and it was because they had to sit still for so long. But um, especially as you get more modern, it's really neat when you find a photo that really shows the personality of the people in the picture, especially if they're your relatives, um, because it, you know, it, it's easy to think of those ancestors as kind of names and dates and things being so serious back in the day, but, you know, they had fun just like we did, and it's really neat to have that visual evidence. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just blogging on my blog um, about the Duchess Anastasia from Russia. Mm-hmm. She took one of the first selfies. Oh, that's you know so that? funny. Did you see that picture? <laughs> There's, I posted a, a photograph of her with her little pinhole camera taking a picture in the mirror. I'm thinking, that's an early selfie. And, of course, that's so popular now with everybody with their cell phones. Absolutely. Who knew that it started <laughs> way back when? <laughs> exactly. Everything old is new again. Well, in this episode, as uh, we've been talking about, we're going to uh, really be discovering and, and uh, exploring this 175th anniversary. We'll be talking with Maureen Taylor. We're going to be um, exploring the website, What Was There, which is a really cool way to integrate old photos into old maps. And um, also talking to Nancy Hendrickson about photo editing and retouching. So I have a lot to do, Allison. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa, and have a great episode. We're going to kick off this episode with news from the blogosphere, and here to give us the scoop is the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. 
You know, our episode, um, our theme for this episode uh, is the 175th anniversary. It's, it's the anniversary of the daguerreotype, and it's we're really kind of celebrating photography in general. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there's been a lot going on in the genealogy space in terms of photographs. Tell us what you've been reporting on at the genealogy blog. Well, I think genealogy organizations are realizing that photos are kind of sometimes what draws people into doing genealogy, and it's a good starting point for um, for organizations to get people interested. So, um, at least two so far are emphasizing their photographic content, and both MyHeritage and FamilySearch have created specific searches for family photographs, um, emphasizing those that content on, on the websites. And of course, then the um, photographs are linked to family trees that you can, um, so you can get in touch with somebody if that's your ancestor. You can get in touch with the person who submitted the photo or you can, you know, see what they're claiming about these people and hopefully find pictures of family members. Yeah, I think it's the visual that really draws you in. I was just reading that um, they were saying if you, you can increase the chance of your Facebook post being commented on by 34% if you include an image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go to FamilySearch.org and you see, boy, they've really changed the homepage. There's a big photograph. You know, right. And I think they kind of revolve. So they're incorporating it just in bringing people into the website. Um, but then they've been encouraging people what to, to sh- not only upload the photos but share the stories. Right, photos and stories um, as a way to connect with other genealogists and share more than just the basic details about your family tree, you do need to register with FamilySearch before you search for the photos. So um, it's just a, a free account, and you sign in, and then you can you know, search by name. Um, on MyHeritage, my you can search, and then you get to see a small picture of the of the photos that you find in your search results, but then in order to see more information, then you would need to um, to join the site. Right, and they they kind of did a rollout on this, didn't they, with our own Maureen Taylor? Right, yeah, they did. They have a page, it's myheritage.com slash photos, and it has links to um, photo projects, like craft projects that you can do with old family photos, and information on how to preserve photos and identify them. So it's kind of a neat little resource for people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so is the Genealogy Insider blog, and all of you listening can check out the two articles that um, Diane has put together on this. The first one's called New MyHeritage.com Website Helps your You Treasure Old Family Photos, and uh, the other one about Family Search was FamilySearch.org Adds Photo Feature and More. So we'll have links on the show notes page to both of those articles, and of course, keep an eye on the blog for all the new items coming out in regards to photos. Thanks so much, Diane. You're welcome. Well, 2014 marks an important anniversary in the history of photography, and here to talk all about it is the photo detective, Maureen Taylor. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Lisa. You know, as I was preparing for this interview, I was looking through all the history of photography, and it's just an amazing story. I mean, we could spend hours on it, but tell us what this important anniversary is that does come to us in 2014. Well, you know, daguerreotypes are 
very distinctive photographs that you can find in your family collection. Um, they date from the early 1840s, and they're really shiny and really reflective. So you see yourself in them. So that pops right out of your collection. But in 2014, we are celebrating the 175th anniversary of the introduction of the daguerreotype. Uh, there were years worth of experimentation. All these technical people were experimenting with chemicals and various mediums to to make a permanent image. And the history of photography is really, really fascinating. So Louis Daguerre had a partner, and I'll never pronounce his name, but I'll spell it for you guys. Uh, I think it's Nepce, but it's N-I-E-P-C-E. So he was an inventor who actually didn't live long enough to see his experiments with Daguerre become a reality. But he invented something called heliography, a photographic technique that took the first permanent image out a window in circa 1826. But Daguerre's work used something called the camera obscura, which projected an image of your surroundings on a screen. Then we get the daguerreotype, which is basically a copper plate with a silver, a coating of silver on it, and then photosensitive chemicals. And then they would take the picture. It would take a long time for the first daguerreotypes. It could take as long as 30 minutes to sit still for a daguerreotype in the early, the very early years. And then they would expose the copper plates to things like mercury vapor. Oh, my. Right? <laughs> so, you know, and mercury vapor is a, a really highly toxic chemical, and so that would help develop the plate, and then they would fix it with common table salt. Oh, wow. Yeah, so when you look at a daguerreotype, the thing I always tell people is never take it apart because it really is just a layer of chemical salts on the layer of that plate. So when they start to deteriorate or they, you know, people think, oh, I'll just shine it up. Well, when they do that, they actually remove the whole image. Wow, so you have incredible. To, you have to be really careful not to touch the surface of a, of a daguerreotype. But, you know, the history and the prehistory of photography is, is really cool. And I'm completely fascinated with this, this thing that daguerre uh, invented. He invented this type of entertainment called a diorama. And so the way this would work, and you have to sort of wrap your mind around this and step back in time to see how this might be possible. So, for instance, 300 members of an audience would stand on a turntable and they would view a changing landscape painting as the turntable rotated to see a different painted scene. Now, Believe it or not, audiences thought that they were actually seeing the real thing. Oh, wow. They thought they were – like it's hard for us to imagine today because we're so used to photography and we're so used to paintings. And uh, But the paintings in the dioramas were so realistic that audiences really believed they were seeing the, the actual scenery. So there were different shows at, between 1822 and 1829 – that were exhibited in Paris and London and Liverpool and Manchester and Dublin and Edinburgh. And it's hard. It's really, really hard for us to imagine. But uh, one of the dioramas still exists in France. 
Is that right? You know, it sounds a lot like the uh, early motion pictures where you're describing the people are in the circle, but uh, eventually they put the images in the circle and spun that around. And then you would look through the little peephole to kind of see what appeared to be a movie. I mean, it's amazing how one thing led to another. Right. So Daguerre was a painter who painted the dioramas. And Mm -hmm. he was a lithographer, so he created prints. And then he was also a manufacturer of mirrors. Interesting. So then he partners with this inventor, (laughs) N-I-E-P-C-E, not to, to, you know, murder the French. And then they come up with this permanent image on a silver plate, which is just amazing. Oh, yeah. And and really, it's that same year of 1839 that the word photography gets used in public at the Royal Society of London by Sir John Herschel. And so that just launches into the the modern day photography. But take us back, you know, if if, uh, we're looking through our old family photos, I mean, there's a chance a daguerreotype could be in there. How do we specifically identify what's daguerreotype and what is not? Because I know sometimes people get tintypes mixed up with daguerreotypes and they're, they're not sure what the differences are. Oh, yeah. So people get confused with uh, what is a daguerreotype, what is an ambrotype, and what is a mm-hmm. tintype. And they, the daguerreotype looks very different than those other two types of images. So daguerreotypes are generally in cases because they are so fragile. You know, the surface of them is so fragile. And it's a, it's a sandwich. I like to think of it as a sandwich. You have the the silver-coated copper plate, and you have a mat that frames the image, and you have uh, a cover glass on top of that, and you have a preserving strip that holds the whole thing together in a beautiful case. And if you have an image that is really reflective and shiny so that you have to hold it at a 45-degree angle, you have a daguerreotype. Ah. An ambrotype is on glass, and you can look at look at it straight on and a tintype is on iron and you can look right. at it straight on but a daguerreotype is very different now the 1839 is the year that's officially known as the you know first commercially successful daguerreotype kind of thing but there really there was one picture uh, of a daguerreotype from 1839 that I wrote about which which I think about as being the very first american family photograph Mm -hmm. and that's um, Dorothy Catherine Draper so her brother photographed her in June of 1839 right after the process was announced to the world and the instructions uh, were published in newspapers and there were exhibitions all over the place so that you would have a uh, an artist come and demonstrate how to make the daguerreotype and then you know it spread from city to city there it was like a tour uh, yeah. So instead of going to the theater, you would go and see pictures taken of, of locations uh, around your town. By 1840, uh, people are are visiting studios and posing for daguerreotype portraits or daguerreotype likenesses is what they were called. So they're still fairly unusual in the early 40s. By the 1850s, they're much more common. And so that's Usually where I see them in family photograph collections, it's from the very late 40, 1840s to 
1850s. In the 1850s, daguerreotypes start, the popularity of them starts to wane because you, you get the introduction of the amber type and, of course, the tin type, which is so popular because it's cheap and instantaneous. Yeah, absolutely. So they weren't around that long. Do many of them survive today, oh. considering how fragile they were? Right. So, so I'm a member of an organization called the Daguerrean Society, and I absolutely love going to their conferences. Mm-hmm. It's usually a two-day event once a year, and this year they went to France, and I, I didn't get to go, Lisa, and it, was, oh. it broke my heart. <laughs> That's the one to go to. <laughs> I really wanted to go, uh, but I didn't. And that travels all over the country, you know, from year to year. But you Mm -hmm. go, and it's all people who love daguerreotypes and who study it, the process, and who study the preservation of it, and you get to listen to lectures. But, of course, my favorite part of it is something called the trade show, where if you think about a hotel ballroom filled with tables – sort of like at a National Genealogical Society conference or an FGS conference or any of those conferences, only a ballroom, table upon table upon table filled with daguerreotypes. Wow, so they really are still out there, still being preserved. The the problem is 99% of them are unidentified. Oh, my goodness. It's just crushing to walk into that ballroom and see tables of faces with no name, and oftentimes the dealers don't even know where they've bought the pictures. So you don't even have that sort of location to give you a start. Isn't that amazing? Well, I imagine that they weren't very conducive to, of course, writing on the back of them. And, you know, you mentioned preservation, and that's the the final question I really wanted to ask you, because if we are fortunate enough to have one of these, and... Um, Hopefully it's still in our family. We know at least it's one of our family members. How do we go about preserving it? How do we take care of it without getting, not only ruining it, but like you say, exposing ourselves to some of those chemicals? Well, the chemicals are all, you know, that's, that's, the, that's gone. You're, you're oh, not good. exposing okay. yourself to anything uh, at this point. But daguerreotypes are very easy to care for. Um, if the case is intact, you can... Uh, I put them in acid and lignin-free boxes with reinforced corners, really tiny boxes. Mm -hmm. I put two or three of them in a box um, so they don't smash around against each other. And then if you really want to, if you know who's in the picture and you want to identify them, you can stick that in an envelope, an acid and lignin-free envelope, and then write on the outside of the envelope. Oh, and include that in your box. Yeah, that's what we used to do when I was a curator. We'd write on the outside of the envelope. Right. Now, you can find some amazing things in these daguerreotypes. Like when you open them up, sometimes people did identify who's in them. So they would pin a piece of paper to the velvet. You know, when you open the case, usually the left side is sort of velvet or silk and the right side is the image. Sometimes it's different, but mostly that's what happens. And so people have taken little pieces of paper and pinned it to the, you know, in the 19th century, pinned the name of the person to it. And sometimes you even, when you open it, you even find a lock of hair. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) DNA along with the photograph, right? (laughs) Well, fantastic. I mean, 
goodness gracious, I know everybody's going to want to go back to their uh, collection. And like you said, do the, the little angle, you know, holding it at an angle, determining exactly what they have in their collection, but then also taking those extra steps. Give us one or two names of maybe some vendors where we might find some of these archival boxes you're talking about. Uh, Hollinger Metal Edge is a great place to get those little boxes. If you're listening in Canada, I think it's Car McLean. McLean. Oh, okay. Uh, McLean. McLean. I've bought things from them. In England, uh, the Time Conservation by Design is the company that sells some great products for preserving. And, you know, to date the daguerreotype, you, you look at the style of the case, the style of the mat, what people are wearing, uh, you know, the sort of typical things. Only daguerreotypes, they, on the surface, they look so simple, and yet year after year, the Daguerrean Society holds this conference, and there are all new lectures. Yeah, that's amazing. Something new to say about something so very old. Exactly. Wow. Fantastic. Oh, well, you were the perfect person we thought of uh, for this wonderful episode on that 175th anniversary. And uh, we'll have some notes in the show notes for you and some links to the resources that Maureen mentioned um, so that you can identify and preserve the daguerreotypes in your own family history collection. Maureen, thank you so much. Always great talking to you. Thank you, Lisa. wonderful if we could actually have a time machine to go back and visit our ancestors' neighborhoods. Well, there's a website that's uh, striving to try to do just that. It's called What Was There? And to tell us more about it is Laurel Erickson. She's the founder of the website. Welcome to the show, Laurel. Thank you very much. This is a really fascinating website. It's whatwasthere.com. And before we kind of jump into the ins and outs of how it works, tell me what prompted you to create the website? Uh, well, I actually work at a at a digital agency, so we have the skills and the ability to build these types of websites. And we realized that technology was at a at a spot where we um, could leverage Google Maps and Street View and add historical photos as overlays onto Street View. So, well, we were one of the first to do that, and um, that's what uh, got us started. And when did you start this? Um, actually, back we started building it back in uh, 2010. It took about a year to get it built, so we really didn't really launch until 2011. Okay, great. I know in in tech terms that seems like ages ago, but <laughs> yeah, it is ages ago in tech terms. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, so what we're talking about here is um, you've integrated the Google um, Maps into the website, so we can interact with it just like as if we were at, at Google Maps. But you're creating this feature where we can upload our old historic photos from our own personal collections and overlay those onto Google Maps. So explain the um, the social part of this, that this is something that everyone can see. What? How does all that work? Yeah. Um, you know, what inspired this actually was that I, I bought an old album from, a uh, family album from eBay um, a number of years before we started what was there. Uh, and in it was a photograph of Ann Arbor, the town that I'm from, that I recognized only because it had the caption that it was Huron River Drive in 1937. And if you looked at the photo, it was just a photo of an old sailboat on the river. And if I didn't have that context for where this was and when it was taken, that photo would have been meaningless to me. But all of a sudden mm-hmm. when I saw, oh, this was, this was 
my morning run, basically, in 1937, it was really fascinating to me. And I, and I re, and we realized that uh, family albums have a lot of significance to people outside of your family, but they need the context, they need the place, and they need the date for other people to uh, share excitement about that photograph. Yeah, that's true. We really do have each other's history in our own uh, attics and scrapbooks. Exactly. And that's what gets us really excited um, is that what was there is a platform both where you can search for your family history, but it's also where you can share your family history. And what we can see happening is often your neighbors have photos of your family members, but uh, you don't know each other's names 20 or 30 years ago. When you start to use a map and you start to use uh, space as kind of a metaphor for search, we're hoping that, uh, that it offers new ways to find out more about your family. Um, if you search the street where your grandfather grew up, you might see that someone else has posted a photo, a group photo, uh, that may or may not include your grandfather in it. So we're hoping that eventually, as more and more people upload photos, we'll be sh- you will be blurring the lines along uh, of family history so that uh, we can share each other's histories and, and uh, knowledge of, of particular spaces. Right. Now, I've seen in some data visualization maps that there's an integration of the time slider, you know, so that you can move through time frame as well as location. Have you considered incorporating that into this um, site? Um, we're actually working on an update to the site that will do just that. It will include both a string search, so you could search for a particular family name, and then it will also allow you to uh, filter the photos to a particular time frame. So if you knew that your grandfather grew up in St. Louis in, you know, the 1910s, you could go to St. Louis and filter only for the 1910 photographs. Yeah, that would be powerful. I mean, because right now you're looking at it and you are looking at old photos, but they're a mix across the decades. Exactly, exactly. And and that, you know, I, I don't have a launch date for that yet, but um, we've already started it and it's already working very well. Uh, we just need to find the time to actually get it launched and, and going. <laughs> So is this a uh, sideline for you? You said that you work for another company? Yeah, we are allowed to do, um, if we have an interesting idea for a project, we can suggest it and uh, we'll put a team on it. And that's how this got started. And, you know, we have a lot of passion for it. And, you know, it's, it, we really hope that it becomes a resource that's used on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. Okay, so if somebody wants to use the site, how do they get started? Um, it's pretty easy. You go to whatwasthere.com. If you want to browse photos, you don't have to do anything. You can uh, click on the uh, Explore Photos uh, button in the upper navigation and then navigate to whatever part of the world you want to uh, see. If you want to upload photos, you do have to register. It's pretty painless. It takes less than a minute. That's just a username and password. And then you can take any scanned or digitized photo and upload it to what was there, and then it asks you, um, do you want to place it on the map? And you say yes, and you can either enter a specific address, or you can enter just a street or a crossroad, uh, and then you, uh, and you can uh, pull the photo over right into Street View. And that's great, because there may be times where we don't have the exact address of that photo, so it sounds like you can go to the general area and do a little bit of searching to find the right spot. Exactly, yeah. And and what you find is, I actually find it kind of addictive to, to upload photos, <laughs> uh, because as you upload photos, you start building that space in your, in your head, and buildings that are no longer there, you kind of know where they are, so that if you see the corner of the old Elks Lodge, in another photo, you can start to kind of string together what that street looked like. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not. But basically, as you upload the photos, you begin to really feel what that space felt like 
uh, in past decades, and it allows you to upload more photos because you know where things are. Well, you just said something that, that struck me as I was working with the site, and that is string them together. What I see when I go there now is it looks like we're looking at individual images one at a time. Uh, do you see a functionality in the future where you could literally travel down Street View and see these images strung together versus viewing them one at a time? Absolutely. That that actually is our goal. Um, you know, it's going to take oh, a while great. to get there. We need, we need to get a lot of photos uploaded. But I yeah. find that even as I'm, I'm working with what was there, I tend to want to use the old photos like Street View. Like in Street View, you can kind of swing around and see what's behind you. I find myself wanting to do that as I'm kind of right. looking at the old photos. Like, oh, have, but, you know, what's across the street from here? And it's like, wait, no, I can't do that yet. Uh, but that is definitely a goal. Fantastic. Now, I have to ask, because in today's age of um, privacy and that type of thing, people are, are keenly aware of that. Um, I'm look- I was looking through the terms of service, and it said something about posting materials on the website that we grant other users limited use, but it included modifying or deleting the materials, what it says. Tell us about that. Can somebody come in and delete something that we've uploaded? Um only uh, the administrators of the site can delete something that you've uploaded, and that's more about if there's a copyright issue or someone, you know, something got uploaded that someone tells us no, they don't want, and what was there, you know, we'll, we'll immediately take it down. Um, but yeah, um, we don't own we don't own any of the photos that are uploaded there. We we have no rights to what you upload there. The only thing that we might claim is um, the the geotags associated with that photo. Because eventually, I think that can be that will be able to be leveraged in some really interesting ways. So, so even though it says that the functionality of the website is that you, as the administrator, can modify or delete, I assume a user could contact you and say, "I have a problem with this because that came right out of this collection, and they don't have a right to that." Exactly. Yeah. And there's okay. a tag on on all of the photos. If you roll over the photo in Street View. Um, there are icons that show up in the upper uh, left corner, and one of them is a flagging option, and that goes comes directly to us, and we look at the issue and deal with it. Great. Well, and to clarify, you said it sounds like it's pretty easy to get started. This is free, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Wonderful. So, um, you know, now one of the things is we invest our time in uploading our images, and you kind of want websites to stick around. Do you have plans to be able to monetize the site so it can be self-sustaining? Um. Well, it, it's somewhat self-sustaining already, uh, um, in that we, you know, we've been able to. We don't have any outside funding, uh, and the beauty of that is that we'll never lose our outside funding. So we can keep it going the way we've, we've been keeping it going for indefinitely. Again, we have no interest in ever advertising on the site or in selling the photos. We have absolutely no interest in that. Our only interest would be in a database of geolocated historical photos. That that's our our only interest from a monetization point of view. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, if you want to get started, um, one, researching and, and looking for the images of the neighborhoods of your ancestors, or getting participating and uploading your own images to add to this whole um, kind of uh, crowdsourcing of imagery, go to whatwasthere.com. You can check it out for free. And um, Laurel, it's a fascinating website. We definitely want to keep tabs on it. I hope you'll get back in touch with us uh, as more of that functionality kind of rolls out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. As we're 
digitize in our old family photos, there are usually a couple of them that catch our eye that we really want to spiff up, you know, put them in a frame and hang them on our walls. And in this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've got someone who can help us do this the right way. Nancy Hendrickson is going to be presenting a brand new webinar in February of 2014. It's called Photo Retouching and Editing for Genealogists. And she's here to give us some preview tips on photo editing and retouching our old family photos. Welcome back to the show, Nancy. Oh, thanks, Lisa. It's always good to be here. Oh, I'm excited about this topic because I love retouching old family photos. I actually get kind of addicted to it. (laughs) It's easy to do. And, um, you know, we want to restore them back as best we can to their original glory. But, you know, I was thinking about this and where I wanted to start in this interview. And, you know, with any project, doesn't matter what you're doing, sometimes it's just getting started that's the most challenging part. So I guess my first question is, are there certain issues, certain types of photos that make them better candidates for editing than other types of problems with photos? You know, I typically will start with the oldest photos that I have because as deteriorated as they are today, 10 years from now, they're going to be worse. So I start with the old and work forward. And it really doesn't matter if they're old black and whites or even 10 types or whether they're color. Uh, You know, obviously, if they're fragile, you're going to treat them, you know, with kid gloves. Right. And, uh, you know, again, if it's a fragile photo, you know, you do have to be careful about scanning it and not running it through a scanner that can really trash the photo. But no, any type of photo is really a candidate. But again, start with the oldest. That's a great that's a great starting place. You know, the ones that are most in danger, I guess, if you will. And I know a lot of times, you know, when people first get started in genealogy, they see all those little spots on the old photos and they think, oh, that's dirt. I'll clean that. But that's not really what that is, is it? No, usually. Usually mold. Yeah. It's usually mold. And, you know, I would never even attempt to clean a photo like that. And if you actually do have photos with mold spots on it, those are actually really easy in, a re, in the retouching process to get rid of those spots, it, you know, it, it's really an easy process. Exactly. You can make them where they just disappear. Right. Um, so, again, this is, I think, why the digitizing of the images is so crucial. We don't want to mess with the cleaning part. Digitize them once, set them aside carefully and, and get them in uh, archival boxes and then just deal with the image. So right. let's do that. Right. Um, I'm guessing we're working, obviously, with software. What what types of software programs do you favor? You know, I am I have always used uh, Adobe Photoshop and I realize it's it's a really complex program and most people yeah. don't want the learning curve. So what I have done lately is I'm a I'm kind of a photo app geek and I've tried about 70 different photo apps for iPhone, iPad, any of the i devices, and I know that there are similar ones for uh, the Android. There are some amazingly good editing apps that are under two dollars, and Adobe, which makes Photoshop, actually makes a free one called Adobe Photoshop Express, and it does a tremendous amount of what you can do on Photoshop. So I'm I'm kind of working my way through, you know, dozens of apps, but that's probably my go-to app 
if I'm going to be doing uh, work on a smartphone or a tablet. Yeah, that's a great one. And what's nice is, it, I believe it's free. But it is you free. Can, mm-hmm. You can purchase some of those add-on features. If there's a particular technique you want to apply right. to that image, you could um, purchase that through the app and then just keep going from there. Now, working on our tablet or our smartphone, boy, that sounds really cool. This means we could do photo retouching anywhere. But I think the question that comes to mind for me is, do you find that these apps will work with a variety of files? Because I think some people get caught up and they're working with a basic JPEG and then they don't realize that every time that they change and resave it, they're losing quality. Tell us a little bit about what you work with in terms of the file format. That's true. I do work I do work primarily with JPEG, but once I have what I consider a good original image, and that doesn't mean it doesn't need editing. It just means I'm pretty happy with the composition. I duplicate that image. I never work on an original image. I always make sure somewhere in one of my files is the original. In fact, I have everything backed up on three different drives because I'm so paranoid about losing an original (laughs) image. So, um, and yes, you're right. Every time you resave a JPEG, you know, you're going to, to lose something of the image. The compression will just make it not as good as the original. So work on a duplicate. You know, I was, I wanted to say about the app before I forget, if you're out and I know we're talking about retouching, but let's say most of us always go out to the cemetery and take photos. One thing that I do like about using a tablet or, or a, a smartphone is that it's really easy if the face of the tombstone is in shadow, it's really easy to pull up an app that turns your phone into a reflector and you can reflect the sun from your phone back onto the, to the face of the tombstone and get a much better photo. So, you know, I'm a great advocate uh, and I'm, I'm coming from a, the days of using a, a digital SLR. So I'm used to carrying a lot of equipment. I've got right. spoiled by running around with an iPhone. But, and it's also wonderful because you can deal with it right then and there. And if you don't get the quality or the right. picture that you want, you can just take multiple ones. You can even do a little bit of your editing right there on the spot Absolutely. to make sure that you've got something that you can work with. Absolutely. And if, yeah. and if you have a phone, a smartphone, you can also sit there and upload it to your Dropbox. Or if you belong to BillionGraves.com, you can upload it to that site. So from the spot, you know, you can do a lot just on site. But, uh, you know, I wanted to just circle back really quickly to what what you were talking about, about the photos and the types of photos that lend themselves. You know, one of the things I'm going to cover in this class is there are a couple of online sites that you can do incredible editing, high quality editing, and there are free online sites. So you're actually doing your work online and then downloading it to your computer. And one of my favorite things to work in is, for some reason, a lot of the color photos that we took in the 1970s have taken on this terrible color shift. If you if you have any of them, you'll know what I mean. Yeah. Shifted over into yellow. Mm-hmm. And they, they're yellow or orange. And it is really easy using an online site that I'm going to be talking about in the in the class that brings the original color back to that photo. And it's ma- it's kind of magical and it takes less than a minute. So I, I love doing that. And I think people who take the class are going to love learning that one. 
And you know what's so funny is the kids who are using the apps, do you notice that some of the uh, enhancements that the apps offer is to turn them back to make him look like yes. a 1970? <laughs> yes, I, I've noticed that. So there you go. It all comes around again. <laughs> no, or the ones that make something look vintage, which actually for a modern picture might be kind of fun to put a vintage look on your modern pictures. Oh, absolutely. Well, so many great ideas. We can't possibly cover them all in uh, our short segment here, but you can certainly learn them all in Nancy's upcoming webinar. It's um, Photo Retouching and Editing for Genealogists. You'll find more about it. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for you, but it's at shopfamilytree.com slash expert dash webinars. And we'll have a direct link to this particular webinar. It's some, um, once you get started, you aren't going to want to stop. Nancy, it's always fun to have you on the show. Thank you hey, for all thanks, the great Lisa. tips. Have a great one. Thanks so much for joining me for this January 2014 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and check out Maureen Taylor's photo detective column in Family Tree Magazine. You can order the paper or the digital version of the magazine at shopfamilytree.com. Next, head on over to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast, and there you will find the show notes for this episode. And those are going to include all the information, the website links for everything that we covered on today's show, including the What Was There website, the photo retouching webinar with Nancy Hendrickson, and everything else that we've talked about. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website at genealogygems.com. And over there, you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>